Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, May the 3rd, 2023. A little more than a couple of years ago, in January 2021, in the aftermath of the January 6th so-called insurrection, I'm not sure, quite sure what we should call it, uh, I had the great analyst of American politics, an irreverent, I, um, an irreverent voice in a, in a sea, I think, of conformity, Michael Lind on the show, uh, the Austin, Texas-based writer on American politics, class, sociology, and economics. He was on to talk about his new book, back then at least, in 2021, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. It cut across traditional grounds, but analyzed America in terms of social class and the economics of social class. It was a fascinating conversation. I think Lind as one of the more important voices in analyzing America. And I'm thrilled that Michael is back. He's back uh, on the bookshelves with a new book, Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. And he's back on the show. And once again, he's joining us from Austin, Texas. Michael, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Is this, Michael, Hell to Pay, is this the second volume in uh, The New Class War? It seems to me to come directly out of it. It does, although it's a bit more granular. The new class war uh, took sort of a 30,000 foot look at both the North America and Western Europe, not so much Eastern Europe, but but the transatlantic West. Uh, and a lot of the generalizations I made in that about the rise of the college educated overclass, the, uh, the disempowerment of the working class, the uh, new geography of uh, the elite in in a few big cities and the working class largely being suburban and exurban now, those generalizations all applied to both the U.S. and Europe. Uh, what I talk about in Hell to Pay, although it does have some parallels with uh, Europe, uh, it's much more focused on the United States, mainly and sadly because uh, the situation of worker power and worker rights in the U.S. is uh, much worse than it is in other uh, industrial countries in, in the Western world. The subtitle of the book, Michael, is um, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. I want to get to the destruction of America later. But this suppression of wages, you seem to suggest in the book that it's, uh, I wouldn't say a plot, but it's um, a convenient arrangement of, of, of both the left and the right to suppress workers' wages in America. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely what I argue. It's not a secret conspiracy. It's quite open. Uh, and it's a result of policies and legislation and norms uh, ranging from labor laws to offshoring uh, policies and trade treaties uh, and others. Uh, but the, the basis of my argument is that workers had power uh, in the mid-20th century U.S. 
mainly through organized labor, through trade unions, uh, whose uh, members in the private sector went up to about a third of the private sector workforce in the 1950s. Uh, today, in the 2020s, uh, the number of private sector workers who are unionized uh, is 6% and falling. It's lower than it was under Herbert Hoover. Uh, and it's the largely the collapse of organized labor, but there, there are other factors uh, as well that we can talk about, including uh, trade and immigration and clauses in individual worker contracts. But mainly deunionization has robbed uh, workers of bargaining power in the workforce and, and uh, countervailing power in politics. And so the system we have is one that is very, very tilted towards employers of all kinds and against workers of all kinds. You mentioned Herbert Hoover, Michael, of course, the president who is associated with the Great Depression, followed by FDR. Was the high point of unionization under FDR or was it in the, the great American experiment of the 1960s? No, the high point came during and after World War II because uh, President Roosevelt required companies that were defense contractors, which by that time during the war were most of the major companies had switched to war production, they had to unionize. So it was with a, a great deal of help from the federal government that unionization, which had been very low, got up to about a third of the workforce uh, and, and it lasted that way in the 50s until the early 60s uh, over the opposition of many employers. Now, what happened following World War II was that we had sort of a preview of offshoring and globalization in the form of the relocation of industry from unionized states in the Northeast and the Midwest to the uh, right-to-work states, so-called, uh, states with very anti-labor laws. Uh, mm, that's a or Orwellian language at its most American, right? Right-to-work states. Well, the enemies of organized labor have always claimed that uh, individual workers uh, are being exploited by labor unions, not by their employers. And uh, any kind of collective action uh, is conformity and totalitarianism. So naturally, uh, employers appeal to the idea of individualism to undermine concerted action by workers. And of course, this hostility to unions and to organized labor has now been inherited by tech companies, big tech companies like uh, Amazon and Apple. So it's a central political and cultural theme in American history. It goes without saying that it's in the interest of private corporations, Michael, to be against unions. When you compare the history of unionization or absence of unionization in the United States with those in Europe, particularly in Germany, but in Northern Europe generally, why, why are unions so much stronger in Northern Europe than they are in the United States? How, how did the, the Europeans and the Germans in particular avoid this descent into neoliberalism? Well, the Germans have a feature co-determination that is on their larger uh, industrial companies. Uh, workers are required to be part of the board. Ironically, this is something that American New Dealers in the Allied occupation regime <laughs> insisted on uh, uh, in Germany after World War II. Some people put a lot of emphasis on that. I don't think it's the main factor. If you look at uh, Western Europe where labor has, has, it's gone down somewhat, but, but not to the levels in the US. The major difference is sectoral bargaining or multi-employer 
fair bargaining. That is, uh, all of the workers in a, a trade or an industry through their labor representatives bargain collectively with all of the employers all at once. And they set wages and standards and benefits for the next couple of years in the cycle. And this is a much less adversarial uh, system than the American system of enterprise bargaining, uh, which the U.S. inherited from the New Deal. Now, originally, uh, the National Labor Relations Act of uh, uh, 1935 had permitted both enterprise and sectoral bargaining, uh, but then this was cut back. Uh, by a right-wing backlash after World War II. And by enterprise bargaining, I mean, not only do you have to, in the United States, organize a single company, but if the company has multiple plants uh, or sites, for example, Amazon has multiple warehouses, you have to organize each warehouse of Amazon, warehouse by warehouse. You you can't simply organize Starbucks uh, all at once. You have to organize one Starbucks uh, site after another. So this is, that's the major reason uh, uh, that unionization has been pretty easily killed in the U.S. Uh, it's, and it's also, it's bad for business in a way that sectoral bargaining is not. If you have sectoral bargaining and the resulting wage and benefits uh, standards apply to all firms, then no single firm is disadvantaged. But with our system of enterprise bargaining, let's say picketing and votes and this whole elaborate process of unionization prevails with one company, it then may very well be less competitive than a non-union or anti-union rival. So in in hell to pay, I argue that if we're going to revive organized labor in the U.S., we need to have uh, some kind of sectoral bargaining system of a kind which, by the way, exists in the U.S. on a small scale. The Railway Labor Act of 1926, before the New Deal, was signed into law by a conservative Republican president, Calvin Coolidge, who approved of it, Uh, applies to railroad workers, transit workers, and interestingly enough, airline workers. And that's a completely separate legal regime from the uh, National Labor Relations Act of 1935 regime that applies to most American workers. And the Railway Labor Act allows uh, sectoral multi-employer bargaining and has been fairly successful in maintaining both high wages for uh, railway and transit and airline workers and avoiding uh, the kind of uh, disruption and adversarialism that you find with enterprise bargaining. You, uh, We had Amity Schles, the biographer, the great authority on Calvin Coolidge on the show a few months ago, She'll be thrilled with what you're saying. She's always claiming that he was more innovative than, than people suggest. So far, so good, Michael. You sound just like another guy on the left. Let's be more like the Germans. Let's be like the Danes. But there's more to it than that. Uh, a Michael Lind book has a sting in its tail. It's not just about mimicking the Germans. You have some interesting things to say about uh, this bipartisan alliance. I mean, it goes without saying that Conservative free marketers, the old neoliberal wing of the Republican Party that barely seems to exist anymore, would embrace this. But but what's in this low-wage world for the Democrats? Why have they participated in this arrangement? 
Well, the individual uh, policies, I think uh, you have to look at separately. So, for example, uh, the collapse of unionism in the private sector uh, has not been a huge disaster for uh, the Democrats because many of these private sector workers vote for Republicans now and have since uh, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Uh, where unions flourish in the United States, it's the public sector. Uh, it, it's uh, the teachers unions, uh, uh, the Service Employees International Union, SEIU. These are very powerful unions. They dominate democratic cities and democratic states uh, to the extent that there's almost a fusion between the public sector unions and the Democratic Party. So, so this is, the, the collapse of private sector unions uh, is not a priority for Democrats. They pay lip service to it, but, but uh, it's, it's not a uh, major emphasis. You also have to look at the social transformation mm. of the center left in the U.S. and in uh, other uh, advanced countries in the last half century, which I talk about more in my last book, The New Class War. Uh, the New Deal coalition was a farmer labor coalition. Farmers were about a third of the population and they were allied with uh, uh, urban workers. And that was the basis for the New Deal in the U.S., for social democracy in Sweden and so on. If you flash forward to the 2020s, uh, the parties of the so-called left, uh, their social base consists of uh, native, mostly white, upper middle class, college educated uh, professionals and managers who are allied with uh, minority groups along identity politics lines, not along class lines. Uh, so, so there's increasingly tenuous connection between the Democrats of Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and the Democratic Party of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and Kennedy and Johnson. Untangle the more complex politics and particularly the racial politics. When I think of Michael Lind, I often think also of Thomas Frank. He's been on the show. He had a book out a few years ago, The People Know a Brief History of Antipopulists, a Brief History of Antipopulism. He's a populist, but a populist with a twist. He wants a, uh, a populism which brings together white and black Americans. It's hard to talk about anything in American history, uh, Michael. Again, you don't need me to tell you this without bringing up race and racial identity. How did this play into it? What has been the role in race and racism in the breakup of the unions and in this low-wage world that you describe in Hell to Pay? Well, if you go back a century, uh, the populist movement uh, was uh, experimenting in some cases with white-black alliances, particularly in the American South. And this terrified the ex-Confederate uh, elite, the Southern Bourbon gentry class, as, as we called it in the South, uh, which mobilized uh, very harsh segregation, uh, uh, very harsh racism, in order to break up this potential alliance between the white working class and the black working class. And this was one of the themes of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the historian C. Van Woodward and so on. Unfortunately, most uh, American journalists and academics know about uh, the populist movement only from Richard Hofstetter, who was a very good historian, but he had a very biased and misleading view of American populism, uh, which was actually much more progressive uh, than, than some of the progressivism 
of the 1900s, which supported eugenic sterilization of the poor. And was against uh, the teaching of Darwin in schools. Uh, The great communicator, of course, participated. Oh, William Jennings Bryan. uh, uh, No, he was a creationist. He did not want schools uh, to teach anything that contradicted the Bible. And was on himself, of course, a racist, uh, certainly turned a blind eye to a lot of the racism in America in late 19th, early 20th century America. Every white politician, progressive, centrist, and conservative, was a racist by modern standards up until really, I think you have to get to the Kennedys and the... Uh, but some uh, worse than others, Michael. I mean, uh, certainly Brian or, or, or Wilson were much worse than, than a Coolidge or a Harding or a Hoover. Ironically enough. Oh, no, that's true. The the Republicans in the North, partly for cynical tactical reasons, uh, were the champions of civil rights on on the grounds that uh, uh, if if they could restore the vote that had been stolen from Southern blacks in the aftermath of Reconstruction, they would vote for Republicans. And indeed, uh, African-Americans tended to vote for the Republican Party where they could vote. Uh, all the way up until uh, the New Deal in the 1950s. Uh, I'm not a great fan of populism as such or of William Jennings Bryan, but if you compare him to uh, his uh, conservative enemies, for the most part, uh, and if you look at Coolidge, uh, uh, and, and for that matter, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, who, who sponsored the most sweeping Civil Rights Act that was defeated in Congress in the 1890s, Henry Cabot Lodge was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, and like you know, many Northern Republicans, he, he promoted civil rights for blacks to some degree, uh, but they also wanted to keep out the Irish and the Italians mm. and the Poles. Uh, Calvin Coolidge in the 1920s, when he was vice president to Harding, wrote an article for the Ladies' Home Journal saying that the only true Americans are Nordics and intermarriage between Nordic whites and other non-Nordic whites produces failed half-breeds and so on. And coming back, bringing yeah. this back to unions <laughs> and, and, and the Democrats, of course, it was under Wilson in, the, in 1917 and 18 in the war that um, the American state inaugurated war on organized labor. So again, it's ironic that this all began under the Democrats rather than the Republicans. No, no, that, I, that's not, I, I would push back on that. Under Republicans in the North, uh, the courts and the uh, uh, business had been engaged in constant warfare against. Mm. But, but Rich, uh, we had Adam Hothschild on the show talking about that period. Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, obviously, a lot more about this than yeah. me. So, so let's get. Sorry, I, I'm 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 distracting you, Michael. You know too much. Um, how is this playing out in America today? You had an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal suggesting. The people paying for this, for low-wage jobs in America, are the majority of Americans who are not poor. Who's footing the bill for low-wage jobs in America today? Well, I argue that not just the U.S., but any modern industrial country in which most people have to sell their labor as wage earners in order to have an income of some sort, uh, if you have a society with a majority of wage earners, you can structure it two ways. Uh, You can structure it as what I call a living wage social insurance system. Uh, If you work full time, uh, you should be paid enough not only to pay for yourself, but maybe with a working spouse or in some 
non-working spouse to pay for children and to pay for social insurance contributions like social security so and uh, unemployment insurance. So uh, in a living wage social insurance system, you wouldn't have a big means-tested uh, uh, public assistance welfare state for the poor. You, you would have that for people who, for medical or behavioral reasons, uh, cannot work full-time, and, and uh, you would want to assure them of a decent standard of living, but you would have high wages and a fairly small welfare state and not a whole lot of redistribution. So, so it's ironic. You seem to be making the argument that, you know, traditionally on the left, the welfare state is seen as protection for the underprivileged and the unfortunate. But you're suggesting that this infrastructure of the welfare state, which is a little threadbare in America at its best, is designed to support a, a low-wage neoliberal economic regime. Is that fair? That's exactly right. And in fact, the contemporary, the New Deal welfare state was residual and it was limited to people who could not work full time. Uh, uh, and it was a very gendered system. Uh, it was based on a breadwinner wage. Uh, but basically, if you worked full time between the 50s and the 70s, you weren't poor. You didn't need uh, food stamps or anything. Now, in the 2020s, depending on studies, uh, between one fifth and one quarter of American households have someone who is dependent on some form of means-tested uh, public assistance. And we're not talking about universal entitlements like, like uh, Social Security and Medicare or unemployment insurance. Right. So it's this, uh, in your Wall Street Journal piece, you talk about the EITC rebates that people claim back from the government. Um, and if you, know, if you know poor workers, this is a nightmarish life because your paycheck is not enough for you to pay your bills for yourself, much less for children. So you then have to uh, pay not just for one single uh, welfare program, but for maybe half a dozen. And these all have separate eligibility requirements, separate means tests, separate bureaucracy. Yeah, it's rather like health care. It's uh, we all know about bullshit jobs, but it's 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 a bullshit bureaucratic sector where people are applying to the state for all these different kind of rebates. It's it, it's Kafkaesque in a neoliberal sense, isn't it? It, it is. It, it's a combination of parasitism and uh, bureaucracy run amok. And many poor people never get even the the miserly benefits that they deserve under the law because they just give up or they can't just figure out the 10 page application requirement or they don't have. The so is it the rich? I mean, it always seems to be in these sorts of narratives, Michael. Um, is it the rich who win? The well, coastal they, elites with their preoccupation with wokeism, are they the ones paying huge amounts to create a new aristocratic class through their kids at these fancy schools? Are they the ones who are winning out of this system? Of course, of course. And, uh, and they were the winners through most of American history. The U.S., contrary to popular belief, was not terribly egalitarian society. Every city, every county, even on the frontier, had its local class system. Uh, and so the only time in the United States when we had a mass middle class, it coincided uh, 
with mass mobilization during the world wars and you got universal benefits like the GI Bill, but also mass membership uh, trade unions. And as those have vanished and the other mass membership organizations accountable to working class people like uh, churches to some degree, they played a major role in a lot of social reform and civil rights and also uh, political parties back when they were federations of local uh, machines that at least had to answer to working class people. We now have parties that are really just labels that billionaires fight for and donors, uh, no unions to offset the power of uh, employers and, and businesses. Uh, and you can, you know, in terms of the decline of the religion, that's happening uh, rapidly. Yeah, ironically enough, uh, it's the reverse of what Tocqueville saw in the 1830s and 1840s. In a, in the ultimate paradox, it's much more like the France he left, um, where there are no intermediary institutions, unions, of course, being key intermediary institutions between the state and individuals. That, that's right. And these are, have disintegrated fairly rapidly in the U.S. in the last half century. And, and we are becoming more like a caricature of a continental European society where basically you have uh, the population has no interaction with politics or governance, except for what they see on TV and hear on the radio. And maybe every few years, they vote, but a lot of people don't vote in the U.S. It is very but, it, but it's an aristocratic system, Michael, in which people without the, the, the cultural infrastructure of aristocracy, people don't dress as aristocrats. Maybe they wear their aristocracy on their, their sleeve. How are we supposed to, when we sit next to someone on an airplane, for example, how are we supposed to know which part of the American world these people are from? They're very hard to distinguish. It's not like in early 19th century Europe where aristocrats made it very clear their social standing. No, now they wear blue jeans and turtlenecks, right, and T-shirts. Uh, now, you can recognize them. First of all, the, the really elite ones have their own planes. You're not going to be sitting next to them so by invitation. But then the, the uh, professional class is more likely to be in first class. But, yeah, they dress down. Uh, they pretend to be folksy sometimes, like uh, uh, Warren Buffett. Many of them are somewhat self-made in as much as uh, very few of the super rich in the U.S. Uh, were born to rich families. Now, the Walton heirs were, the Koch brothers were. Uh, but if you look at a lot of the Silicon Tech uh, Valley people and the Wall Street people, they, they didn't come from the working class. Mostly they came from the college-educated upper middle class. Yeah, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's fascinating. So some of your critics have accused you, as you know, of nativism. How does this play out for the issue of immigration? The, the, woke, the wokest class, the elites, are open to immigration, perhaps because it doesn't impact on them. I know in terms of the arguments you make in um, Hell to Pay that the the suppression of wages is enabled, empowered by relatively open borders. I'm assuming then that you're in favor of a more stringent immigration policy in terms of protecting low-wage labor. Uh, exactly right. I take what was the traditional AFL-CIO 
labor position up until they switched in the late, late 1990s, early 2000s. Uh, and historically, labor unions in the U.S. in, in the 19th century under Samuel Gompers uh, uh, in the 1900s, uh, even the black labor unions uh, uh, like A. Philip Porter's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm A. Philip Randolph's Ray Porter's union, uh, they, they wanted limits on the number of low-wage competitors who were being uh, often sponsored by employers and brought to the U.S. as free immigrants or as indentured servants. It's always been the employers who want, uh, for obvious reasons, the employers want a buyer's market in labor and the workers want a seller's market in labor. That doesn't mean you have to be against any immigration of any kind. You can be very generous to refugees. You can have skilled immigrants. Uh, but uh, if we have an economy, as the U.S. economy has been for the last uh, half century, that creates mostly low-wage jobs, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, uh, eight out of the top ten uh, jobs that are created in the greatest numbers in the U.S., today require no education beyond high school. Uh, so the only uh, uh, reason to bring in lots of uh, unskilled workers uh, is to deter unionization, which is harder when you have people who just got here from another country. Right. And, 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 and I'm guessing that the blind eye the state, both on the left and right, pays to immigration helps this because undocumented workers in America can't join unions. They're much more careful about their engagement in labor disputes and strikes and politics itself. They can't vote. So I'm assuming that, um, that, that the fact that American borders are, for better or worse, relatively open, uh, if you choose to come into this country illegally, actually compounds what you're describing in hell to pay. Exactly. And we have a very divided labor market in which, thanks to immigration and also to immigration law, there are multiple categories of workers with different rights, which is an employer's delight, as you can imagine. Uh, so at the top, we have uh, citizen workers as well as legal permanent residents. These are sometimes called green card holders. Uh, and these uh, legal permanent residents. I'm a green card. What, what, say that again. What was it? Uh, uh, legal permanent residents. No, but what was, how did you describe them technically? Uh, legal permanent residents, uh, LPRs, have all of the rights of U.S. citizens except the right to vote, mainly. So uh, as an LPR, you can join a union, you can quit your job, go get another job in the United States, and so on. Uh, so the LPRs, their numbers may threaten American workers' wages, but for the most part, they have the same bargaining power as American workers, and employers can't pit uh, legal permanent residents against U.S. citizens. The case is different when we look at so-called GIS workers, like H-1Bs in the tech sector and H-2As in farm labor. GIS workers are indentured servants. Uh, they are bound to the sponsor. They are bound to their employer. Mm, at the whim of the state, or the no, not the whim of the state, the whim of the whim, the whim of, of the employer. employer. Yeah. Uh, you cannot, if you're a guest worker and you quit your job because you've been abused, you have to go back to another country. You cannot quit your job. Yeah, and that's been happening in Silicon Valley. You mentioned tech. Yeah. One bit of your argument, Michael, I'm not sure I understand. Uh, you argue that why invest in labor-saving machinery if cheap if cheap labor is available and subsidized by the government. But that's not happening 
in the free market of Silicon Valley. Of course, all the rage these days is in chat GPT and in AI, which will clearly take people's jobs away. So isn't the market ultimately against cheap labor, replacing it with automation for better or worse? Not necessarily. And it can also cheap labor, even if it doesn't prevent it, it can slow it by generations in some cases. So for example, uh, if you looked at the McCormick Reaper, Cyrus McCormick, so far, uh, you know, uh, mechanized farm tool from the 19th century, he was born in Virginia. The Southerners didn't want to buy his Reaper because poor whites and poor blacks were cheaper than this machine. Uh, it was in the high wage North that there was created a mass market for the McCormick's Reaper. Uh, and you see the th same thing today with car washes. There's actually a technological regression taking place with car washes in Britain and in the US where automated car washes are being replaced by hand car washes employing very, very low wage immigrants. In New York, many of them are from Mexico and they're called car washeros. Uh, so in this case, you have, you're going away from mechanization and automation because the people are literally cheaper than the machines. Uh, having said that, I think that uh, people who think they're pro-worker, who want to slow or prevent the introduction of labor slaving technology, are really profoundly mistaken. Uh, the, the thing that has helped ordinary people more than anything else is industrial capitalism. I'm in favor of industrial capitalism. I just want an industrial capitalism uh, in which companies compete on the basis of technological innovation and new business models, not on the basis of driving down wages as far as they can. How should this play out in politics? You had an interesting piece in Unheard recently, Michael, asking whether Biden will be the next Carter, and I, I guess implicitly whether it will trigger a, a re-architecting of the Democratic Party or of our political world. Um, you had another piece asking how to transform U.S. politics. What would you like to see in terms of the transformation of the of American politics in ideological terms? Which party is most suited to taking this on? Is it the the, the Trumpian Republicans or the the woke? Democrats, or perhaps a third party? Well, as I argued in my uh, piece in, in Combat, uh, in practice, both parties reform things at the same time. There are, there are reform elements of both parties that work across party lines. And we see this in history. So for example, in the New Deal era, there were many pro-New Deal Republicans and there were many anti-New Deal Democrats. Uh, and you had cross-party uh, collaboration. Uh, and the New Deal consensus was shared by Republican presidents like Eisenhower and Nixon, as well as Democrats like uh, Roosevelt and Truman and Johnson. Uh, the same is true in the neoliberal era. That was a bipartisan project. You had Bill Clinton as well as Ronald Reagan. You had Tony Blair as well as Margaret Thatcher. So I, I think it's very naive to think that one faction, even if it's my faction, will take over one party and then that one party will take over the government for 10 or 20 or 30 years or however long it takes and have this revolution. Uh, uh, if we're going to re rebalance the economy in a more pro-worker direction, 
we're, let's face it, we're going to have two parties. They're going to be divided on social issues and other things. We need the pro-worker factions of each party to gain power at the expense of the neoliberal factions in each party. And interestingly enough, in the Democratic Party, it's actually the minority voters, the uh, Hispanic Americans and African Americans, who are more populist and more pro-labor in the sense that I'm talking about, than it is the elite white Democrats. So so the assumption that uh, minority voters are naturally going to be woke progressives and open borders libertarians and so on, uh, I, I think is really mistaken. What do you, how would you respond to some of your, what you might call elite white Democrat critics? Jonathan Chape, for example, wrote in the New Yorker a piece, and I think this was quite a compliment, a whole piece against Michael Lind, uh, a case study in the perils of what he calls discourse poisoning, suggesting that your detachment has been counterproductive. Uh, he describes you um, as uh, thinkers who uh, they inhabiting a dream world of pure ideas, and there's no more pure example than Michael Lind. You've lost, uh, you've lost touch with reality, according to Che. What would you, <laughs> how would you respond? I, I assume you already saw that. I was quite a compliment. I wish someone wrote a piece like that about me. Oh, I was very flattered, you know, and, and but you clearly you clearly trigger something in these white elites. Well, I, I think I trigger a certain sense of guilt because uh, they know deep down on at least the elite Democrats that they really are not Roosevelt, you know, Harry Truman Democrats anymore. They're really Bill Clinton, you know, Wall Street, uh, Jamie Dimon Democrat. They know this. Uh, and and so I think they're kind of conflicted personally. Uh, now, the irony of that piece is he attacked a non-existent Michael Lind who said that everyone should vote for Republicans. If he had read my piece in Compact, and it was that one that you showed on the screen, How to Transform U.S. Politics, I said just what I had said earlier. Any major structural transformation has to be the work of both parties or elements of both parties collaborating across party lines so evidently i i know jonathan i i upset him, to get so him on the show maybe the two of you can talk <laughs> it out on keen on um, well I, I i upset him so much that he just writes a piece attacking a piece that he did not read uh the, the subtitle of the book michael finally is how the suppression of wages is destroying america and i'm not sure if you came up with that subtitle the idea of destroying america is a i'll take the fifth amendment uh, yeah, I mean, these publishers like destroying America because it sells books, particularly in, in the airports when people got nothing better to do. Well, what it, what it captures... I, I mean, in all seriousness, yeah. it's not really going to destroy America, is it? I think it destroys America as a middle-class society. Obviously, America is going to be around for centuries and millennia. So, uh, But what it, what, it, what it gestures at is my argument that a lot of crises that we tend to think are separate with separate causes, including uh, falling rates of family formation, uh, high levels of disconnection, where younger Americans have very few friends compared to their parents and grandparents, uh, identity politics and partisan polarization. Uh, I, I'm not a determinist. I don't argue that low wages and bad jobs in the credential arms race is responsible for all of these. But I, I think they make them worse. Uh, I think that if 
uh, wages went up, let's say for fast food workers and, and uh, janitors and freight haulers from about 25,000, slightly above poverty where they are now, to 30 or 35,000 a year, uh, I think you'd see fewer broken homes and, and more marriages and, and more, more uh, uh, people having as many kids as they wanted. So, uh, so it's making America worse. Uh, by exacerbating. Not making America great. Finally, Michael, uh, long-term viewers, listeners to my show, know I any opportunity to quote Bob Dylan. <laughs> and this is a perfect opportunity for Hell to Pay in his great song, Murder Most Foul, which I think got to number one on the charts, first time he's ever done it. Uh, uh, a song about nostalgic for, uh, for John F. Kennedy uh, begins... Uh, was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. And it ends with uh, JFK being shot. And someone says to him, don't worry, Mr. President, help's on the way. Your brothers are coming. There'll be hell to pay. Of course, that's meant ironically, there was no hell to pay. What happens in the America if the suppression of wages continues? What is the hell to pay, Michael? Will it be civil war? No, no. Will it, be the, will it be the degeneration of democracy? More January sixth. More Donald Trumps. I, I think you get what I warned against in my previous book, The New Class War, a kind of Latin American system of politics, which is not left versus right. It's oligarchy versus outsiders. And you just get this endless destructive cycle of the insiders being attacked by the anti-system demagogues, or usually rich members of the establishment themselves, who don't actually deliver to their followers. And that's just a very destructive pattern. It has existed in Latin America. It existed in much of the American South between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Revolution. So that is the hell that we would pay if we don't strengthen worker class bargaining power in America.